0: Okay, I think that um, at this point, Mrs. Parham is taking all the kids, and are we going out the back? Okay, so we're switching things up today. So anyways, out the back door, um, or I guess actually that's the front door, and as they're heading out the front door, um, the rest of you ought to be turning in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Just a... A quick thing as uh, as the kids are dismissed, I it's rumored that unless there is a great calamity and still there very possible great calamity could occur in the Sunday school this morning or in the children's church this morning. It's always possible. But from what I understand, barring um, massive accident, when uh, you leave today as part of the kids lessons, they will be serving you fish shaped French toast. Okay, that's part of their lesson, and they're also going to serve you. So if the kitchen blows up sometime during the next, whenever I'm done, then probably not having fish-shaped French toast. Not fish-flavored for French toast. <laughs> fish-shaped French toast. Um, <laughs> well, we'll, uh, we'll give you a, a fish-flavored French toast. But anyways, so we're, we're giving you breakfast this morning. So that's all part of the kids lesson. Um, and also then they will also be serving you so that they learn a couple of different things today. So today we uh, will continue our study in the book of of Daniel and we'll be hitting chapter seven today, at least the first part of it. And I suppose that of the various I mean, it's always wise to pray before the sermon, but I suppose that Daniel 7 warrants um, a little extra prayer um, as we approach this fascinating passage of text. So if you will, join me in prayer. Father, we humble ourselves before your word. This word rebukes our ignorance and we confess lord that we do not understand all of it even with all of our study and with all of our wisdom and knowledge our attention even to some of the greatest commentators who have lived we know that your we know that sometimes your word is challenging But we also know that your word is written for our edification and for our encouragement and for our strengthening and that we might grasp the grace which is ours in Christ Jesus. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would teach us from your word. I know there are people here, Lord, who need to hear what you are speaking today through Daniel chapter 7. We all need to hear the message of your word. So I pray, Lord God, that you would teach it to us. Pray, Lord God, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold the wonderful things from your word that apply and apply it to each of our circumstances by the power of your Holy Spirit. And these things we ask in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, Daniel lived in a in a very tumultuous time, a time of uncertainty. Daniel himself was um, pretty much taken as a child out of his homeland, out of his, the only place he had known, and then exiled into a foreign land. Daniel grew up with a fair amount of uncertainty, not always certain whether or not he might live or die. He lived through the the reign of numerous kings. Kings came and went. In fact, he even lived during the time of two big empires. So he lived and survived the Babylonian Empire and into the Assyrian Empire. Daniel sometimes was um, regarded as a hero and promoted and considered a great man and and lauded with honor and glory and wealth and riches. And then the next day he was thrown into a lion's den. Sometimes he was ignored. We know the Belshazzar after the um, Belshazzar seemed to have completely forgotten about Daniel. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar seemed to consider and regard him highly. And so Daniel is a guy who lived in uncertain times. Daniel was a guy who lived in a place where his understanding of the world, world, his faith in God was often seen as a little bit odd or maybe really odd. His, uh, His ethics, his morals, his values were seen as being in contrast with the culture of his day. Daniel was an outsider. And so when we consider all of the uncertainty of Daniel and the life that he lived, and when we consider the oddity of Daniel serving his God, we can certainly understand the relevance of the book of Daniel in our lives we live in very uncertain times and sometimes our belief in God might even be seen as odd that we might think things that are not in line with the way our culture is going. And so as we come into Daniel chapter 7, we enter into a, a completely new section of the book. Daniel, The book of Daniel can really be um, divided into two big, two major sections. Chapter one through six, we might label as historic narrative, and chapter seven through twelve as what in the world is this? That's that's the technical theological term. Uh, But there is this dramatic shift. It goes from a a straightforward historic narrative that certain things happened and they're pretty easy to understand. But when we get to Daniel chapter 7 through 12, we get into these really cryptic images of prophetic visions and dreams and monsters and and numbers and what does 1,230 days and 2,330 mornings and a time and time and half a times and, and lions with wings and leopards with four heads and visions and angels and all kinds of crazy things going on. Well, that's where we're at. But the book of Daniel was written for our encouragement. So when we consider this change, our understanding, uh, this change in genre, if you will, it requires a change in our strategy, how we approach it. Now I'm not saying that Daniel chapter one through six and Daniel chapter seven through twelve are disconnected. They are actually connected quite closely. One of the ways we see them connected, and we'll we'll look at this today, is the vision that Daniel had and that Nebuchadnezzar had in in Daniel chapter two, and the vision that Daniel has in chapter seven are parallel. You're going to see. Remember, there was a statue with four components, and today we're and those four. Uh, components. Those four metals, if you, uh, those four um, materials, represented four kingdoms. Guess what? We're going to see four beasts today. Four strange animals, and they represent four kingdoms. They represent the exact same four kingdoms. And so we do see some some. Uh, Some parallels, Um, the the two chapters or the two halves are connected by language. I didn't really go over this, but beginning in chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7, the book of Daniel is not written in Hebrew, it's written in Aramaic, which is kind of odd. So Daniel chapter 2 through Daniel chapter 7 is written in Aramaic, and Daniel chapter 1 and 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew. And so we see a little bit of a connection, and I didn't really deal a whole lot with that, and you can study as to some of the theories as to why that occurred. But we do see that connection. So let's talk a little bit and lay a few ground rules as we get into this rather um, challenging uh, portion of Daniel, uh, of the book of Daniel. And what, what the... These chapters, the genre of writing is sometimes called apocalyptic, that this is apocalyptic literature. And so let's talk a little bit about apocalyptic literature. And apocalypse, this word apocalypse simply means um, revelation or to reveal. And so you say, well, isn't the whole Bible revelation? Isn't God revealing himself through the whole Bible like, well, yeah, he is revealing himself through the whole Bible. So then what is apocalyptic? If it's revelation, what's the difference between that and the rest of the Bible? Well, there are all sorts of definitions, and I'm going to just give you my little attempt at a definition. Here it goes. My attempt at defining apocalyptic literature is, um, well, I better think of a good definition real quick, huh? I I thought I'd have one by now. Here's how I understand apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is seeing things as God sees them. Remember when we were in the book of Revelation and, and we were looking. Revelation is God's view of things. Now, we see kingdoms come and go and we might see things in a certain way, but God sees them differently. So. When we get to apocalyptic literature, we are seeing events as God sees them. And in this type of literature, it celebrates God's victory over uh, the enemies of those who hold fast to him. When we look at this particular section of the book of Daniel, what we are going to do is we are going to move from looking at human evil to the spiritual forces behind that human evil. For instance, we saw... Ah, Nebuchadnezzar or Darius, and we saw some some various kings, and they could be cruel. What this section of the book of Daniel is going to show us is not the human side of the cruelty, but the spiritual forces behind the human cruelty. That is, this is how God sees things we are going to move from deliverance out of the lion's den to deliverance from the very power of death itself. And so we are going to see the spiritual forces behind this human cruelty. This then, of course, reminds us, as Paul told us, And affirm to us that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with principalities and powers and spiritual forces. And so when we see, uh, for instance, we see forces of evil and we see um, devastating things happening in our world, perhaps we see ungodly um, laws being passed or we see terrorist attack. We can say, oh, that's horrible. That's horrible. And it's true. But we need to recall that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. There is a spiritual force going on prompting all of these things. And we wrestle not with flesh and blood. Our battle is not carnal. It is spiritual. And we have spiritual weapons by which we engage these spiritual forces. And so when we look at this section of the book of Daniel, the first part of Daniel, we saw wicked kings. Second part of Daniel. We see the forces behind those wicked kings. We should also note that when we get to apocalyptic literature, it is highly symbolic. And sometimes the image and the symbols are very easy to understand. Uh, sometimes they're, they're really tough. Generally, we will take the route of that scripture interprets scripture. So when we come to some of these images, we will first look to scripture to interpret the symbol. All right. And I know we dealt with that when we were in the book of Revelation. So our first place to go is not CNN news, not current events, not what's going on out there, but scripture, because we have this crazy idea here that scripture interprets scripture and we go there first. And if we find some parallels, we first uh, engage that and work through, through that. After that, we might broaden our our approach. And sometimes we might even get to a place where we say, I I don't know what this is. I'm certain of this, that in the end, at the day of the Lord's great arrival and the consummation of the age, all of these things will make perfect sense. This side of things, not always. And a good example is, and I've used this a lot, so sorry to bore you with a repeated um, illustration, but If you lived before Jesus came, and you were told this about the coming Messiah, that he would be called a Nazarene, that he would be born in Bethlehem, and that he would come out of Egypt, how would you reconcile all those three things? You say, "Uh, I don't know how you do that. He's, He's from Nazareth, but he's from Bethlehem, but he's in Egypt. How do you reconcile? You and I look back on that event and it all makes perfect sense to us, doesn't it? We see how all three of those seemingly contradictory statements about the coming Messiah all make sense because we know he was born in Bethlehem, escaped to Egypt, came out of Egypt and dwelt in Nazareth. All right. All those things make perfect sense to us. But if you live before the time of Christ and you try to figure those things out, you'd say, I have no idea how this works. But for us, it's plain. I think going forward, when we look at things that are still to come, we might say, I don't know how it all fits together. I am confident, however, that on that great and glorious day when we see our Lord once for all, all these things will make perfect sense. So on this side of things, we'll try to do the best we can, but I will also from time to time say that I'm still working on that one. The other thing we should note about apocalyptic literature is its goal is to... Comfort and encourage God's people. In fact, the book of Daniel is written to encourage God's people. They're in exile. They have sinned against God. They have rebelled against God. Um, They have violated God's covenant. And so God has upheld his covenant with them. Part of the covenant is I will bless you when you follow my laws. And guess what the other side of the covenant was? If you disobey My laws and you become idolatrous, I'm going to send you into another land. And guess what? Where they are. They're in another land, just like God said he would do. But the people in exile need to know, does God abandon us? Does he still have a future for us? Is he still on our side? Does he still care for us? Are we here forever? Have we been forgotten and abandoned by God? And apocalyptic literature is going to show that not only has God not forgotten about you, but he has a grand and glorious future for his people. And so be hopeful, be encouraged, be strengthened, live your life for the glory of God, and he has not forgotten you. And I think every single one of us could use Um, look around the world today and we go, you know what? A little hope, a little encouragement would go a long way in my life. And I believe that Daniel chapter 7 through Daniel chapter 12 will do just that. Even when we encounter some things going on, I don't know exactly what that is. I think the big message is that God is still in control, even though it looks like everything is spinning out of control. So I've... um, My outline for the chapter, and actually we're going to continue on uh, next week in the same chapter. So uh, my outline that's in your notes actually covers this week and next week. Um, The first part will be the the beastly vision. The second part will be the heavenly vision. And then the third part will be the interpreted vision. We are going to get through verses 1 through 8 today. But let's go ahead and read um, Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read um, verses 1 through 14. And we'll go that far, even though today we're only going to get through eight verses. Are you with me? Everybody happy? Here we go. Daniel chapter seven, verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and a human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth. Between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the ten horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great threats. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white like snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. The throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him and the court sat and the books were opened and I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words. Which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all people nations and men of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and this is the inspired and inerrant word of God well so we begin now with Daniel lying on his bed and and having a dream. And we should note that this dream occurred in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And this connects us back to Babylon, because do you remember how chapter six ended? Who was? You'll recall. Let me remind you. I know you all remember. It's just ingrained in your mind. Chapter. Yeah. Chapter six ended. chapter, Chapter six actually began with the last day of Belshazzar's life and with the overthrow of the Babylonian kingdom and the inauguration or the overtaking of the Medo-Persian Empire. So, chapter 6 had the very last day of the life of Belshazzar. Well, now in chapter 7, what we have is we have in the first year of Belshazzar. So, we're connected back to Babylon. I think this is interesting. I believe that every word in the Bible is inspired by God. I also think that the way God's word is structured is also inspired, that things aren't just put together haphazardly. And, and, and I think that this is interesting. I, I like looking at the way things are structured because in, in chapters 7 and 8, we are taken back to Babylon. And then in chapter 9, we go forward um, to, uh, to Darius, who is the, uh, the uh, he's a Mede. And then chapter 10 and following, we end up with Cyrus, king of Persia. And it just strikes me as here's what we have. We have the transitory nature of the kings of men. Once again, we see Babylon reigns for a while. And then Darius reigns for a while. And then Cyrus reigns for a while. And they all come and go. But you'll notice that Daniel as God's representative, abides forever. He continues through all of them. And um, so the structure just reminds us then of the transitory nature of human kingdoms and how Daniel, as God's representative, endures them all. God remains consistent and solid, and you can count on him. And when things are rising and falling and powers come and go, our God never fails. And so we see this occurs in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And Daniel has this dream. And in the dream, he sees then that the four winds of heaven, um, I was looking in vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming up out of them. And so we see the four winds of heaven, they're churning up the sea. And I think it's, let me just pause here and talk a little bit about this imagery of, of the ocean or the sea, because I, I think it's imperative. It's, it's helpful for us understanding the book of Daniel. It also helps us when we uh, when we enter into the book of Revelation. Daniel and Revelation are very closely associated. Uh, and much of the imagery that Daniel uses, John picks up in, in his apocalypse. Now, when we talk about the sea, and, and we dealt with this a little bit when we were in the book of Revelation, but the, the image of the sea is important in apocalyptic literature because it is. it symbolizes or it, it, it keys us into this idea of chaos, that the ocean or the sea to the Hebrews was the origin of chaos. It was the origin of sinful humanity. We'll see that actually in verse 17. It is the abode of evil. It is the place where um, chaos begins. It is the place of evil and it is the place of turmoil. Just in case you... want some scriptural backing for this to see that sinful humanity is often compared to the sea i think i brought up a few passages of text let's see if we've got them up there there ah there's one in isaiah chapter 17 verses 12 to 13 say Ah, the thunder of many people they thunder like the thundering of the sea Ah, the roar of the nations they roar like the roaring of the mighty waters the nations roar like the roaring of many waters but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away and so we see that the the sea then is compared to sinful humanity what's our next one But the wicked are like the tossing of the sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And so again we see the wicked compared to the chaotic waters of the sea. We should also and, and I think that this is important, you'll recall in the book of Revelation how the the great beast comes up out of the sea. There's a sea beast and This is the origin of evil. And I think this was why that in the new heavens and new earth there is no sea. Have you ever wondered about that? When God recreates everything, there's no sea. And you're like, oh, wait a second. You know, no oceanside vacation, no surfing. Um, I mean, I don't surf now, but I wouldn't mind learning. But you guys know my, my view of Of Revelation. I I, I think in the new heavens and the new earth, what it's saying is that the origin not only is evil and wickedness, there is none of that. The very origin of the beast is gone, the very abode of the beast that destroys God's people. The source of evil is destroyed. That's how I would understand that. That when God creates the new heaven and new earth, it's just not going to be without ocean. It will be an ocean, I think. It's just not only will evil be destroyed, but its very origin will be destroyed. That's my take. And I think we see this here. And so it's the tossing. It's this idea of of sinful humanity. It is the origin of evil. Here's some, some really cool things, though, about the ocean. And that is, while it may be the source of chaos and evil and wickedness and sinful humanity, guess what? God has victory over the sea. Look at this. In Psalm 1815, God rebukes the sea. In Jeremiah 522, in Job 712, God sets a guard over the sea and says, you can come this far and no further. Who's in control of this place of chaos? God's in control. In Nahum 1.4, God causes the sea to dry up. In Habakkuk 3.15, God treads on the sea. It does not thwart him. And in Isaiah 27.1, he kills the evil dragon who dwells in the sea. God is in control of all that happens in the places of chaos and in the place of evil. These things do not overwhelm our God you should note also that it is the four winds of heaven that is tossing up the sea. It is God who makes these things happen. God is in control. Yahweh is God. These beasts that will come up out of the sea, even the most powerful, gruesome one, is under the authority of God Almighty. And so, as we see this, we now take a look at these beasts so out of this earthly, carnal, and chaotic realm, these four beasts arise one after another in succession. And, and I think the important thing for us to realize here is that these evil kingdoms all succeed one another until the end. And this is the sovereign will of the sovereign God who rules over everything. That is, kingdoms come and go. And they will continue to arise and fall and wicked men will arise and they will continue to arise until God redeems things completely. One kingdom comes and it's unjust and it's overthrown by another kingdom and we see it's injustice. And then another kingdom comes and sometimes there's relief and sometimes there is Some good, but for the most part, they are ruled by men, and they are transitory by by nature. We are going to see in Daniel chapter seven through twelve that as these kings and these kingdoms come and go, that the people of God are persecuted by the enemies of God. So we do well to be well prepared. And this is one of the contrasts then with Daniel chapter 1 through 6 and Daniel's. Remember in Daniel 1 through 6, all of the faithful got delivered, right? The kids in the fire, right, got delivered. Daniel would approach the king with some pretty sketchy news and the king would say, "Hey, Hey, thanks for telling me that. I didn't know that. That's really good. I'm thankful for you, Daniel. Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den and he gets delivered. Everything goes swimmingly well for the people of faith. Well, now. Chapter 7 through 12, not so much. Sorry, a little, little, little less victorious. Well, again, if we look at it from God's perspective, it is totally victorious. But from an earthly perspective, the people of God, how should I put this, are slaughtered. First part, people of God do well. Second part, the people of God who are faithful um, do even better if you... Really want to know, because because we're going to look at things from God's perspective. From man's perspective, things don't go very well at all. But if we're looking at things from God's perspective, those who are put to death for and and seem to be overwhelmed by these beasts are actually kept safe and secure by the Almighty God who has loved them, and it is they who are truly victorious. And it is they who will endure. And so it is through this graphic imagery that Daniel... brings this reader to experience the tumult of the dream and yet in the back of their minds we're going to see that it is God Almighty who is ruling and reigning and so this prophecy I believe is given to encourage us and one of the things we'll talk about more next week is in the midst of all of the boasting and all of the rising and falling of kingdoms there is this calmness in heaven there is this certainty and this steadfastness in heaven and while Horns and images come up speaking blasphemy and boastful words and and killing the saints of God. God is never swayed or moved by these things. And he remains firm. So we have these four rather grotesque beasts. I'll do my best now to try to identify them. And there are certainly this has been um, talked about and written about with. To no small degree, and there is certainly some debate as to what each of these beasts represent. Um, there are two basic theories, and um, the first one is that the four kingdoms, the first kingdom everybody agrees on, the first kingdom or is Babylon, But the second kingdom, some say, is the the, the Medo Empire, and the third one is the Persian Empire, with the last one being Greece. There's some real merit to that case, but I I think the more traditional view, and I'm going to hold to the traditional view, is that the first kingdom is Babylon, the second kingdom is the Medo-Persian, the combined um, empire of the Medo-Persian Empire, the third kingdom is Greece, and the fourth kingdom is Rome. And this parallels then Daniel's statue in chapter 2. Are you with me? All right. So let's talk about this first one. This first one um, is, it, it, it talks about the, a lion that has wings like an eagle and then um, it's lifted up from the ground and uh, the, um, and its wings were plucked and it's lifted up from the ground. It stands on the feet like a man and has the mind of a man. So this is a rather strange um, vision. And we tend to associate this one with Babylon, and that's probably the easiest one, because when we were studying the the statue, the head of gold was Babylon. Well, it was Nebuchadnezzar. And the head of gold, the very first kingdom, was the Babylonian kingdom. And this one makes sense to be the Babylonian kingdom. And and the reason being is because Nebuchadnezzar's um, Babylonian empire was often referred to as both a lion and an eagle in Scripture. And I think I put some, some passages down in your notes there that we see here, um, Babylon described as a lion in Jeremiah 4.7 and 49.19. And you can see the, the passages of Scripture there. And so um, Babylon is seen as a lion in Scripture, but it's also seen as an eagle in Scripture. And so we see those references. I think I put them in your notes. Jeremiah 49.22, Lamentations 4.19, Ezekiel 17.3, and Habakkuk 1, 1.8. And so it would be very natural if Scripture interprets Scripture. We would not be um, stepping too far out of the realm of, uh, of Scripture to say that, yeah, that makes sense. Babylon uh, depicted as both a lion and an eagle. And then you'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar was removed from power. His wings were plucked if you will, and he went, well, mad. And he became a beast, basically, and he lived eating the grass, and I forgot the fancy term I gave you for that, but there's actually a medical term, and people have actually suffered from that particular uh, medical condition where they actually think they're an animal. And uh, there are documented cases of that, and that's what Nebuchadnezzar suffered from because he would not humble himself before God Almighty. And then reason was returned to him and he was put back into his right mind. And this just so you can see this imagery makes a lot of sense. We see scripture interpreting scripture that Babylon is a a, both a lion and an eagle that Nebuchadnezzar had his power removed from him. And then he was made to stand on his feet, got up off of all fours from eating like a cow. Um, and stood up on all fours, and a human mind was given to him. So we see that restoration of um, Nebuchadnezzar. So beast one, I think, is, a very, uh, is very easily depicted as the kingdom of Babylon. The second one, I, I tend to lean towards the, uh, what we'll call the traditional view, and that the, the Medo-Persian Empire, and it's depicted, it's the only one that's like a real animal, it's a bear, And it's depicted as a bear. And it's lifted up on one side and it's got three ribs in its mouth. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion as to why is it lifted up on one side. Some would say because the Persian Empire was actually a little bit stronger than the Medo Medo Empire. And so perhaps that's what it means. And it has three ribs in its mouth. Uh, What does that mean? Perhaps it, it speaks of the three major victories of the Medo Empire. Persian Empire over Lydia, Egypt, and I forgot the other, the third country. Or it just could be that that's what Daniel saw. Take your pick. The third beast is one as of a leopard, and this generally um, speaks of Greece. We're actually going to spend a fair amount of time with this third beast next when we get to chapter 8. Because I think this third beast is described um, in great detail in chapter 8. But we would identify it with Greece. Um, Swift and uh, and Alexander the Great was moved quickly. That was one of his strategies was he just moved with lightning speed and just took over things very quickly. And then after Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was split into four kingdoms. And our leopard in this has four heads. And so that seems to make some Sense there, but it's the fourth beast. Then that we're going to. Uh, I won't spend a lot of time on it this week, but next week we'll have to deal with it. I keep trying to buy some time. <laughs> no, actually, I'm really excited. This is this is fun and enjoyable uh, learning and studying. But um, but this fourth beast is is not really described. And I'm not sure about my little rendition here because that looks like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. But anyways, that's just that's the author's interpretation of that. And he's smiling. So but anyways, I don't know what nobody knows what this beast looked like because he doesn't describe this beast. He only tells us that its teeth and its claws were like iron and bronze and that it trampled down other kingdoms. And so all we see is the ferocity of this particular Beast, nobody knows. And Daniel doesn't describe him. He just says he's bad. Really bad. Really fierce. And extremely terrifying. And most will identify this beast with Rome. And, and part of it is just simply because in in history, that's the next big kingdom that came up. So you have Babylon, you have the Medo-Persian Empire, you have the Grecian Empire. And then after that, you have the Roman Empire. And so that would seem to fit. The, and, um, and Rome was a different kind of empire. And it was um, extremely terrifying And then we have this matter of this this beast has like 10 horns and then three get uprooted. And then there's another little horn with eyes and, and a mouth. And I'll spend some time with that next week. And this mouth speaks boastful things and says all sorts of blasphemous things and changes times and seasons. So this is really odd. And I know you want me to answer the who is this and what is this. And I know you want me to tell you right now, but you'll have to come back next week. My point in, in all of this, or I think the point, not my point, but the point in all of this is I think that this, an apocalyptic literature, is less about writing history in advance as it is giving us a theological statement about the conflict between ungodly forces of human depravity and the glorious power of God. And I think that's, we get so wrapped up sometimes in trying to say, oh, well, you know, what event is this? And so there's these 10 horns and, you know, Hal Lindsay said, oh, well, that's this 10 nation European union. And that worked great while there were 10 nations in the European union. And then once there were more than that, then we had to write a new book and and as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly cautious about reading prophetic stuff and, and using CNN and the news to interpret what's going on. In the, and, and the reason being is because, personally, not only is it bad hermeneutics, it's just a fancy way of interpreting, saying interpreting the Bible. But I've just seen its failure time after time after time. I mean, so you get some guy on TV and he says, oh, well, this event here, that coincides with this particular event in whatever, Zephaniah. See? And then the next week something else happens and he says, oh, wait a second. That really is what's happening here. And we have to keep changing and keep writing new books. And and I, I know I've mentioned John walvert who passed away recently and, and, and a great scholar and a great um a man of god loves the lord I, I certainly is enjoying the presence of jesus right now but he wrote a book about the oil crisis and how that you know, back with, the, you know, way back in the 70s and how that was the end of the world. Well, then that kind of fell apart. So he wrote another book and this made Saddam Hussein. the. Uh, and then Saddam Hussein got deposed and he had to write another book explaining the new, how it, now it's Iran. And then, so he has to write like four, take the same book and write it four times because historical events kept changing. How about this? We stop interpreting the Bible through history and we start, or through current events, and we start looking at God's word. Not that when we look out at what happens is, has nothing to do with God's word. I'm just saying, I think there's a more solid basis for interpreting scripture. And so when we read these things, certainly these things tell us about the future. I believe firmly that these things tell us about the future. But I think they're less about God writing history in advance and more about God showing how he is in control of history. And here's why God is in control of history. See, God just didn't look look and foreknow what's going to happen. God's not just a great predictor of what's going to happen in the future. God is the one who created the future. And so he knows what's going to happen in the future because he's the author of it. And so it's not just he's not just telling us this. So we can go, oh, that's really cool. And I've got the, the whole puzzle figured out. But he's showing us these things because God is saying, listen, folks, the life that you live, the culture that you live in, the, the society that you live in, it comes and it goes. But My word endures forever. See, the grass withers and the flowers fade. And, and you know, when, when God said that the grass withers and the flowers fade, read, read the whole con." context there it's about babylon and its fall kingdoms come and kingdoms go but my word prevails i will always be faithful to do what i said i would do and so while these kingdoms rise and fall i will never abandon you i will never forsake my covenant i will never change i will never go away And so today, and by way of conclusion then, <coughs> today we see the horrifying images in the news depicted by an endless succession of earthly kingdoms. Last week on Resurrection Sunday, you and I were worshiping our Lord and it was glorious and it was wonderful. And while we were doing that, our brothers and sisters in Pakistan were being torn limb from limb by a terrorist an explosion targeting Christians at an amusement park for the purpose of killing Christians. That attack was launched and our brothers and our sisters, dozens of them, lost their lives. And we see that evil. And we look around the world and we see the wickedness of North Korea and the oppression of a variety of different countries. See, many in our world understand these beasts. They're not caught off guard by them at all. You recall in, in Revelation, there were two beasts, weren't there? One was fierce and he crushed in the opposition and the other was seductive and he led them astray. I think these two beasts are still very relevant for us today. There are beasts such as um, North Korea or China or places that will stomp down your Christian faith and will kill you. Then there's also probably what we face, a little more seductive. And that is to lure you away, to compromise your faith with other things that are just a little bit more important. You know, um, to water down the gospel to not be too offensive. But beasts come and go. I think that we, in our lives, we deal probably with the beast that seduces with false teaching much more than we do the beast that stomps down our Christianity. But I I wonder is that violent beast coming our way. How many saw God's Not Dead, too? Anybody get a chance to see that? Okay, so probably if something stood out to you. Maybe you liked it, maybe you didn't. Here's what stood out to me. Was at the very, very end, you know, they're rolling the credits. And at the very end, they're rolling the credits and they said, this film was um, was inspired By all of these events, and there was a list of court cases where religious freedom was being destroyed. In other words, you cannot have a Bible study in your home, and you cannot say the name of Jesus, and you cannot hold to religious values, and you cannot have a pro-life club on your campus, and you cannot... Follow your sincerely held beliefs. You cannot. A pharmacist in the Pacific Northwest is being forced, a local guy, being forced to prescribe life-ending medication, not just abortion, abortion pills. I'm talking about pills that will end the adult life of an individual. And if you don't do it, then we will take your livelihood away from you. And he's saying, but I serve the God of life, and I will not do that. And, of course, we we see this this, uh, religious freedom bill in North Carolina. I believe it just got vetoed. But the idea here is that um, pastors and people of religious conviction should not be forced to violate their religious conviction. So, for instance, um, we should not be forced to violate our religious conviction. I know it just got vetoed. But here's the thing is I'm reading these things. It's not a matter of... Those who supported that law were not just of a different opinion. They were haters and despicable, and they need to be eliminated. So I wonder. Right now, I think seduction is probably our greatest threat. But I think this other other beast is coming. Maybe in our lifetime, maybe not. I don't know. But my question then is, how are you preparing? See, Daniel saw these beasts and he was terrified, but Daniel was faithful. He lived for the Lord no matter what. And whether he lived or died, if he got thrown in the lion's den, then he gets thrown in the lion's den. God fortunately delivered him. But when he went into that lion's den, he didn't know he was going to be delivered. So how are you preparing? Are you ready? I mean I mean, the seduction is already here, but what are we doing to prepare ourselves to know God's word so well that no matter what the seductive influence is, we can say, "Oh, that's not right." That does not line up to God. Because here's the thing: Satan never shows up with pointy, pointy horns and a tail. All right? It just doesn't. And what is, it? is it Rat poison is 95 percent corn, right? the 5% poison that we're concerned with. <laughs> and that's how false teaching is. It, it uses scripture and it's usually by somebody who's, you know, a good speaker and smi- has a nice smile and white teeth and nice hair and, you know, good person. How do you, are, are you preparing yourself? Are, are you learning God's word faithfully? See, because when you know God's word faithfully, you won't be seduced. And when you know God's word faithfully, when the hammer comes down, you'll say, well, then I guess I get crushed because you can't crush me. Because even if I die, I will live. And even if you have this temporal victory over me, I have eternal victory because I'm viewing things from God's perspective. I know how God sees things and I win. Why? Why? Because God is victorious. So so what are we doing? How are we preparing ourselves? I think we need to go home and think about that and give ourselves to the reading of God's word and give ourselves to the the holding on to orthodox, faithful Christian truth. So we've asked two questions as we studied the book of, of Daniel. Our two questions are this. How does a person live faithfully in a pagan society? Because that's what Daniel has to do. And our second question, is God worth living faithfully for? Daniel chapter 7 is going to help us understand how to live faithfully in a pagan culture and probably even more pronounced, it's going to show us the God who is worth living for. I read verses um, 9 through 15 and we'll talk about those next week. But there we begin to see perhaps one of the most glorious pictures in all of scripture and that is the Ancient of Days who is glorious and high and lifted up and one comes to him like a son of man and to him is given dominion and the kingdom and power that all nations and tribes and tongues might worship him. Do you? Because here's the thing. You get this boastful horn. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is just kind of a teaser for next week. You get this boastful horn. It's just so funny because you get this boastful horn and he's speaking all of these big things, you know, and he's saying all of these, you know, things. And then he's incinerated and it's over. (laughs) There's no fight. There's no battle. There's no struggle or wrestling. It's just like God comes in and says, okay, your time is done. I let you do what you needed to do for the time that I allowed you to do it. And now it's over and it's done. And my son reigns. So I hope you will live Yeah. eh, I hope you'll live for that and consider then how do we serve God faithfully. I'll tell you, I'll just, here's the shameless plug. And so just one way you can do that is, you know, Tuesday morning, you ladies are going to be studying in first Peter. And and I know Simone and Gloria and Megan will teach accurately God's word. They will teach it accurately and faithfully. And if there are questions, just say, wait a second, I don't understand things. They'll really work with you to make sure. And on Wednesday nights, we really try to, to, we have time to discuss difficult issues and we try to keep things. So engage yourself in a time where God's word is studied faithfully and, and and be part of that and give your life to the reading of scripture on a regular basis. And every time I ask that question in Bible study, how do we remain faithful to God? The two answers, it's almost kind of rote and I get kind of, bored with the answer, but it's still, but it's true. And that is, well, we need to read God's word and we need to pray. And it's like, you know what? Those are still the two most faithful ways to stay faithful to a God in a very compromising culture. So let's stand and let's pray.